You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Let's call him Sam. That Tuesday morning, Sam was having a bad day, a really bad day, but he didn't know it yet. According to the reporter, Sam drove into work about 7.30 a.m., crossed a vast parking lot, about 2,000 spaces, got out of his car and into an elevator. There was a receptionist in the elevator as he rode up to the top floor, and she made a comment to him about how over the period of time she'd been at his company, which is most of its life, she's noticed the work ethic dropping off a little bit, particularly recently. Now, this innocent comment triggered the fears that Sam had been having for the past year and only served to reinforce his resolve to do that day what he had planned to do when he got out of bed this morning, and that was write a memo. When Sam got to the top floor, the elevators open. He sat down at his computer and began to compose the memo. A few meetings intervened, and by about 11.45 a.m., he hit send. But not long after that, he would find himself sitting at the same desk with his head in his hands, wondering why he had sent that memo and what in the world he could possibly do to take it back. You see, the memo would not land well. It was a memo that he wrote to hundreds of his managers with a lot of tough talk and demands and ultimatums. Unfortunately, this memo would circulate beyond its intended audience, would end up uh, being posted on the Internet. And uh, a week later, within the course of three days following its posting, his company would lose $1.5 billion in market capitalization. Three days, one memo, a really, really bad day. And he realizes, as he looks back on it now, that Sam had made a bad decision. And as he sits there with his head in his hands, he asks himself the kinds of questions that I think all of us ask when we make bad decisions. How in the world did this happen? Secondly, is this who I am? And thirdly, how could I do this differently? I want to think with you this morning about change, about personal change about change in our lives. We're beginning a series on the seven deadly sins, and next week we'll start looking at particular sins. But in general, it's important for us to realize that there are two mistakes we tend to make about sin. One is we think that we can fix it, and the other is that we think that it can't be fixed. But The reality is that Jesus Christ came to change lives. Not just to fix or forgive sin, but to change lives, to draw us into what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Yes, he will forgive our bad decisions, but he also wants to draw us into a new way of living life. All of us, I think, have made bad decisions. We find our heads and our hands from time to time. Why did I lose my temper at somebody I love? Why did I blow off the deadline? Why did I fail to help somebody who is in need? Why why did I just pile up more debt upon debt? Why did I have to click on that link? 
We ask the same questions in that context. How in the world did this happen? Is this who I am? And how can I do differently? Well, our text this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I believe that in this text, God has described for us a process of change. This text, as we'll read in a minute, we'll see, begins with a, a therefore, which calls to the reader's attention the prior 11 chapters in which the Apostle Paul has argued most magisteriously for the grace of God in Jesus Christ that God does forgive us. But now, therefore, he argues, live your life with the new possibilities that follow from that forgiveness. Move beyond forgiveness into newness of life. So let's open up to Romans 12, uh, and uh, you'll find that on page 922 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, let's stand together and read, read Romans chapter 12, verses one through to aloud. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I think if I could have 20 minutes with Sam, this is the passage I'd want to talk about with him. And I would want him to see here something about an unstable identity, a valuable identity, and an integrated identity. Let's look at these three questions that he might have asked himself. And the first is, how in the world did this happen? Let's consider our unstable identities. The Apostle Paul makes the point in verse 2 that we are not to be conformed to this world. Do you see that? Do not be conformed to this world. The word be conformed has in it a word that, from which we derive our English word scheme. Schemata. Scheme. A scheme was a plan or, a, or a, a design or a pattern. And the word that's translated here, world, is not the word world like God so loved the world. It's really the word from which we get our word eon. Aeon, which means age, period of time. This, Paul refers to this as passing age. So he's, he's saying, in essence, don't imitate the patterns of this passing age. I, I love what J.B. Phillips does when he renders this. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. There's an unstable identity that the world presents to us. Paul has portrayed this earlier in the book of Romans. At the very beginning, he's, de- he's sort of described this identity when he says, all humans claiming to be wise became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Here, patterns. So, Sam, what did this look like for him? Well, I want to suggest to you that Sam had a pattern in his life, a pattern that was driving his life, a pattern to which he, without even realizing it perhaps, was conforming his life. 
It's interesting what he used to identify that the work ethic was flagging in his company. It was a pattern in the parking lot. Over the last year, looking out of his uh, corporate headquarters, he would look over this 2,000-space parking lot and notice that at 8 a.m. and at 6 p.m., the parking lot was not used very much. Now, it may just been that people were carpooling or, uh, or biking to work, but he concludes from that pattern that his employees were not giving him their very best. In fact, his memo is all about changing. He will know that the work ethic has changed when the pattern in the parking lot looks more like the kind of pattern he expects from a, a hard-driving tech company. So there was a parking pattern, but I also think there was a personal pattern in his life. One of the things in the memo he writes is, is this, this sentence. He says, never, which is all caps, never in my career have I allowed a team which worked for me to think that they had a 40-hour job. Now, there's a little bit of Sam, a little hint of Sam at the center of that sentence. Never have I allowed my team to work this way. And I think it, it just suggests to me anyways that Sam may have a pattern in his mind of the ideal CEO, the ideal leader, the ideal entrepreneur. And he wants not only his employees to help him conform to that, but he's doing everything he can to conform to that. I'll be here at 7.30. I'll be here at 8.30 p.m. I'll be here on Saturday. Because the age has furnished him a pattern to which he's trying to live. And he doesn't even know it. I suggest to you that the pattern comes not from the scriptures, not even from his own values, but comes from Fast Company or Wall Street Journal. See, the world is squeezing him into its mold. And I want to suggest this morning that the Apostle Paul dares to, to indicate that it does the same thing for you and for me. We don't even realize it. You know, if you wonder whether and to what extent that's happening in your life, let me just ask you this. This is going to be a litmus test for you as it is for me. How often do you find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else? Are you looking at them as though they might offer you a pattern? I asked myself, you know, I went to a high school recital this week uh, for my daughter, and I, I, and I thought, I caught myself afterwards. Why was I sitting there looking at all the parents in the room and admiring how well-dressed and put together they were? And I was imagining all of the important things that they were doing in the world. And I was thinking about those because I was wondering, why don't I feel more important or better dressed or better put together? Why is it that when I hear a really great sermon, I feel this pit in my stomach? You know? I love great preaching, but I have a tendency to compare myself to other preachers, other leaders. And it's not helpful. It actually, um, I can feel the squeezing even without identifying it because it makes me work in ways that are not native to who I really am. I'm starting to become inauthentic as I play according to the images of other people. Why is it that we try to squeeze ourselves into tight jeans? I mean, think about it. That's somebody else's body type. But we will squeeze ourselves in. We'll do anything to squeeze ourselves. Why is it that we wear the clothes that we see on TV or in music videos or that cool barista behind the counter? We want to look like them and have their tattoos and, and uh, goatees. And why is it that we spend so much time managing the, the, our bodies? It's because I think the world furnishes us with these patterns and these images. So what I want us to see is... This may help us explain how we get ourselves into these places where we make decisions that are really not true to who we are. And see, change is real, but we have to let Jesus challenge our false and unstable identities. And the Apostle Paul begins there. But then there's this second question. Not just how in the world did this happen, but 
Is this who I am? Is this who I really am? Here we learn about a valuable identity. When I find myself with my hands in my head, I tend to ask myself, does this really indicate this is who I am? And what does my outburst of anger, what does my lustful thought, what does my fixation on money, what does my shoddy preparation for that meeting tell me about who I am? Another way of thinking about that question is, is to rephrase it, am I okay? Here the Apostle Paul gives us a rich phrase, by the mercies of God, there in verse 1, by the mercies of God. When Paul uses that phrase here, I think it's linked to the therefore, and it sends us back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. I've just been telling you all about the mercies of God. And now it's time to apply those mercies to the, to the, to the ideas you have about yourself. The word mercies there, uh, it's kind of an unusual word. Paul doesn't use it a lot in the New Testament. It refers to the, um, uh, the intestines. It's the lower, the lower part of your inner self. The, the mercies, the depths of a, your being. And so he's saying, by the mercies of God. In other words, God at the very depths of God's being. Uh, when he's looked at us and the situation that we're in, the problem that we have, the struggle that we're in, human struggle, the, the human predicament, has acted out of the depths of his being in Jesus Christ, mercifully, to come and rescue. And that's what the story has been about for the prior 11 chapters. Uh, you, the wages of sin is death. Paul said, this is the problem. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the, God's action born out of his depths. So that we could say, now there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you are okay, the Apostle Paul says. Now it's interesting for Sam, the question of am I okay and who am I is not rooted in sentiment or self-confidence. He's a very successful business person, quite a smart man, and he knows that for him, value is determined by cold fact and macroeconomic realities. In fact, this is why his company loses $1.5 billion in three days. The analysts, apparently, were looking at that memo, and here's what one of them said. The perception was that they have to work overtime to meet their quarter. And so the world was looking at that going, oh, this must mean there's some internal problem here that this signals. But the good news is uh, Sam actually knew differently. He knew he was having a bad day, but he knew that the company over against the macroeconomic climate was very, very valuable. And that was the good news for him. See, Sam Forbes magazine would say Sam was one of the highest value creators one year in America. And he knew how to correctly value things. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul is encouraging his readers now to correctly value their lives, not on the basis of their mistakes or bad decisions, but on the basis of the macro climate of God's love, what God and the Father has done through Jesus Christ and is doing through his Holy Spirit. By the mercies of God, receive a, a more valuable identity, a true identity, a stable identity, the real you. See, when we look in the wrong place, it's easy to make this kind of a mistake about whether we have worth or not. I came across a story recently about a bagpiper who uh, received a message last minute from a funeral director saying, a homeless man has just passed away and he has no friends and family, and would you be willing to play your bagpipes at his funeral? 
And of course, he said I would be happy to do that, but it, he had a pauper's burial in a remote cemetery in the woods, and unfortunately, the bagpiper had hard time finding the location. By the time he arrived, he was an hour late, and the funeral director left, and there was no sign of the hearse anywhere, just the crew, uh, the diggers, sitting there uh, eating their lunch. So he went over to the men that were there and apologized profusely for being so late, and then he walked over to the, to the hole, the grave, and he uh, stood by its edge, and in full military uniform, he started playing his bagpipes. And the workers uh, gathered around, and uh, he played his heart out. This is what he said. I, I played out my heart and soul, he said, for this man with no family and friends. I played like I've never played before for this homeless man. Uh, and as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept. I wept. We all wept together. And when I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As they opened the car, door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I never seen nothing like that before. And I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. An easy mistake to make when you look in the wrong place. And when you and I do something stupid, and we say, oh my gosh, and you are tempted to go to the grave of shame, I want you to remember what happened on Easter morning. And those, the angels of heaven will look you in the eye, and they will say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Because in Jesus Christ, you are not dead. You are infinitely valuable. Your old stuff has passed away. The Apostle Paul says, present yourself to God. By the mercies of God, your bad decisions tell you nothing about who you really are. But God's great decision in Jesus Christ, forgiving all of your sins, tells you everything. Something is always worth what the highest bidder is willing to pay. Think about what God has paid to set a value. On your life. From the depths of God's being, He sent His one and only Son to die for you. That was His decision. And that's the good news. Hans Urs von Bolt Sajar wrote No one can resolve this mystery into dry concepts and explain how it is that God no longer sees my guilt in me, but only in His beloved Son, who bears it for me. Or how God sees this guilt transformed through the suffering of love and loves me because I am the one for whom his son has suffered in love. But the way God the lover sees us is in, the fact that, uh, is, is in fact the way we are in reality. For God, this is the absolute and irrevocable truth. Change is real, but we have to let Jesus recalculate our, the worth of our true identity. We ask, how in the world did this happen? We ask, is this who I am? Finally, we ask, how can I do differently? And here we learn about an integrated identity. The apostle continues, verse 2. The other side of the contrast is this. Don't be, tra- don't be conformed, but be transformed by, by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this word transformed is the word that you may be familiar with, from which we get our word metamorphosis, and it means to take a new shape. Let your life, as valuable as it is now, take a new shape. And how? How is that possible? He says, by the renewing of your mind. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's the pattern. But let God transform you into a new person 
by changing the way you think. The way you think. The way you think. More than the way you act. So I had never heard of, of the man we're calling Sam before. I didn't know the story about the memo. I only heard about it recently because a friend of mine was talking about him. And this friend of mine said, I got to have coffee with Sam. And I got to ask him a question. Sam's a believer. He believes in Jesus Christ. And so I asked him, how do you live your faith at work? And I was so surprised that without any apology or hesitation, he said, I don't. I don't try to. Faith is for Sunday. But the dynamics of the marketplace are such that faith doesn't really apply. I'm accountable to the shareholders. And sometimes you have to do things that you're uncomfortable with. And so my friend was, was really surprised by that because he said he has a really strong faith identity. It's a really strong work identity, but they're distinct. It's as though he has his faith in one pocket and the rest of life in another pocket. Faith is for Sundays, but work is from Monday through, through Saturday. Now, I think this is like many of us. Uh, but then the question is, if that's true, how could Jesus change a life if he's only got Sundays to work with? Interestingly, there's a lot of skepticism today about change. Carol Dweck is a psychologist at Stanford University. She tells a couple of stories about twins. You know, we have this idea that there's a lot that's hardwired into us. So twins are interesting to us. And she tells us about James Springer and James Lewis. They were identical twins separated shortly after birth, but both married and divorced women named Linda. And then both married women named Betty. Tells another pair of twins that were brought together recently, Barbara Herbert and Daphne Goodship. They were identical. When they were reunited at age 39, each arrived wearing a beige dress and a brown velvet jacket. Each had the eccentric habit of pushing up her nose, and each giggled more than anyone else she knew. So there's a lot about us that might not change, but Dweck writes this. She says, these dramatic examples might lead people to believe that personality is encoded in our genes and impossible to change. However, more and more research is suggesting that this is not the case. Far from being simply encoded in the genes, much of personality is a flexible and dynamic thing. What is more, we're beginning to understand how to change it. And her conclusion is beliefs. She writes, beliefs matter. Beliefs can be changed, and when they are, so too is personality. Change is possible. And it has to do with the way we think. And that's what the Apostle Paul is, is, is saying. Think differently. Think about everything in light of the mercies of God. And your life will change. God will change your life. It's why interesting that think is so important. Jesus was fundamentally a teacher, wasn't he? He's known as a teacher. He made disciples, and it took him three years to do that. And disciple is nothing other than a learner. That's what the Greek word for disciple means, is a learner. So he's teaching them. The disciples are apprentices. They're people who learn to think the way the master thinks. Uh, an apprentice is someone who tries to acquire the ability to do what somebody else does or to be what somebody else is. And Jesus does that by teaching. So Peter is a... Uh, a disciple. And it's interesting that, that when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, that Peter feels somehow, I could walk on the water. Because why? A, that's a, a, a disciple's an apprentice. And his master is walking on water. He understands that with time, he'll be able to walk on the water. And he can walk on the water as long as he thinks about the mercies of God. Remember that? As long as he's looking at Jesus, he's able to walk on the surface of the water. But as soon as he looks at the wind of the waves and starts to think about, other, about his life and his potentials in any other way than through the lens of God's faithful mercy, he starts to sink. 
And so Paul calls his readers to integrate the mercies of God with how they think about everything, to take your faith and to take your life and put them in the same pocket or take them out and put them on the table together. And this is the process of taking uh, of your life taking new shape. Change is real, but we have to let Jesus teach us to integrate our true identity with our real life, to carry our faith, this simple thing that God is merciful, into every activity that we have. So finally, let me close this by asking, what, what do you think Paul would say to Sam if Paul sat across his desk? You know, I found that there's nothing more exhausting than trying to become who I'm not. It's so painful. Because ultimately, there's nothing more exhausting than feeling worthless when I fail, trying to be someone that I'm not. And there's nothing more um, exhausting than wondering why, why I can't change. Here's what I think Paul would say. Sam, he'd sit there and look in his eyes and he'd say, in all of eternity, there will never be another Sam. God loves who you are. God couldn't love you more on your best day than he loves you on your worst day. And because of God's mercy, he sees you as his son, as he sees Jesus. And he's ready to help you live your life like he lived his. And as you learn to think about him as Jesus thinks about the Father, you can change. And you can be my agent of change in this world. Look up, Sam. Let's write another memo. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the good news of the nearness of your kingdom. Make us a bold people who dare to take you at your word and to see ourselves not in light of the world's eyes or even our own eyes through the lens of our failure, but let us see ourselves through your one good decision about us, through your great mercy, Jesus' name. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.